Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top-quality, personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. I'm Melissa Murray in for Alex tonight. On January 6th, Capitol Police Officer James Blassengame did not think he was going to make it home. He was slammed against a stone column in the Capitol's crypt, injuring his head and back. And he watched as rioters wearing Make America Great Again hats urinated on the walls. And he listened as they shouted racist slurs at him. The actions of the mob on that day traumatized Officer Blassengame so much that he still has flashbacks. But Officer Blassengame doesn't just blame the rioters for what happened on January 6th. He thinks that Donald Trump himself should be held accountable. Seeing the timing of events and how things unfolded and to whip up, I mean, to feed people uh, incorrect narrative for months and then to have them come to the city at the time that they're going to certify the votes, then to whip people up and say, we're going to go down Pennsylvania Avenue and um, to, to, you know, as a president, today, to use the bully pulpit. I mean, that, how does that not mean something? You know, Democrats, the president of the United States, this is and stolen by the, the most powerful human being on the planet. If the most powerful human being on the planet can, is not held accountable, can do whatever they want to do, what does that say about our democracy as a whole? In 2021, Officer Blassengame and another Capitol Police officer filed a civil lawsuit against Donald Trump. They argued that they should be awarded financial damages from the former president for the pain and trauma that they endured on January 6th. President Trump tried to get the case dismissed, claiming that because he was the president at that time, he was immune from civil cases related to January 6th. But today... The United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit rejected that assertion. As the three-judge panel put it, when a first-term president opts to seek a second term, his campaign to win re-election is not an official presidential act. In other words, the panel decided that Trump's actions on January 6th, as alleged in these lawsuits, were not part of his duties as president. So the lawsuits cannot be thrown out at this stage. And that is a huge deal. In addition to Officer Blassengame's lawsuit, 11 other Capitol Police officers have filed suits against Donald Trump, and members of Congress have also filed their own cases. Now, Trump could still try to make the case in court that based on the evidence, he should be held immune. But now, at least, these plaintiffs will get their day in court, and this ruling will make it less likely for any future immunity claims that Trump makes to succeed. We're going to get some help from expert legal experts unpacking all of this in just a minute. But first, Donald Trump's lawyers were back in court today in Fulton County, Georgia, and they were arguing yet again that Donald Trump deserves special treatment from our justice system because he is running for president. Can you imagine the notion of the Republican nominee for president not being able to campaign for the presidency because he is in some form or fashion in a courtroom defending himself. That would be the most 
effective election interference in the United States. That was Trump attorney Steve Sadow arguing that Fulton County DA Fannie Willis's election interference case against Donald Trump should not take place before the 2024 election. But get this. He also thinks that if Trump wins this election, then this case can't go to trial after the election either. Uh, if your client does uh, win election in 2024, uh, could he even be tried in 2025? The answer to that is, I believe that under the supremacy clause and his duties as president of the United States, this trial would not take place at all until after he left his term of office. That would be in the year 2029. Now, most days, a ruling saying that Donald Trump can be sued in civil court for his actions on January 6th or Trump's lawyers arguing that he shouldn't see a courtroom until the end of this decade. On most days, that would be the biggest pieces of Trump legal news. But presidential immunity has reentered the chat. We've just learned that Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is the judge in the special counsel Jack Smith's federal criminal election interference case, has denied Donald Trump's motion to dismiss that case on grounds of presidential immunity. Now, Trump is surely going to appeal that decision, but it doesn't look good for the former president. In civil court and in criminal court, Trump and his legal team are trying every route that they can to claim that he is immune from any legal liability. The question, though, is where do these arguments work and where do they fail? Joining me now is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst, and Jen Taub, Western New England University law professor. Thank you both for being with us tonight. First question for you, Lisa. Tonight, we have two decisions dealing with presidential immunity. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit concluded that Donald Trump's actions on January 6th were the acts of a candidate, not the official acts of a president. And for that reason, he is not immune from civil suit. Meanwhile, Judge Tanya Chutkin has denied Trump's motion to dismiss the criminal federal election interference case, concluding that presidential immunity provides no defense for Donald Trump. What do these two rulings mean and how will they implicate the other cases that Donald Trump faces? Well, Melissa, these two rulings are really different in a way, not only because one is from an appellate court and one is from a district court, but one arises in the civil context where there already is Supreme Court precedent and the other does not. So let's take the Chutkin case first, because it is considering federal law and federal constitutional defenses. And she's very clear to say that her decision deals only with the case before her. And she's not necessarily saying that he's not entitled to immunity, for example, in a state prosecution. But what she is saying is the text, the structure, the history of the Constitution affords a president no absolute immunity for acts that he takes while he is president, period, full stop. The appellate court's decision is really different because in Nixon versus Fitzgerald, the Supreme Court already decided that a president is entitled to absolute immunity for his official acts in a civil case for damages. And so based on that, the question for the Court of Appeals was really, was Donald Trump acting in an official capacity with respect to the allegations brought by the members of Congress and the police officers who sued him civilly for their injuries? And they decided that at this stage, taking the allegations made by those plaintiffs as true as they must on a motion to dismiss, they can't grant him immunity. But 
he is free to raise his claim of presidential immunity again after discovery, after he collects evidence. Does it look good for him? No. But is he foreclosed from doing so? Also, no. Excellent. Um, So that's probably going to be raised again in the course of a trial, if one should happen there. But back to this ruling from Judge Tanya Chetkin. So, Jen, this decision is surely going to be appealed to the D.C. Circuit and will probably appeal be appealed even further on to the Supreme Court. Given the composition of the court, given the nature of the D.C. Circuit, what is the likely future for Judge Chutkin's decision? Is this going to stand on an appellate review at the Intermediate Appellate Court and at the Supreme Court? That's a great question. And just piggybacking on what Lisa said, the same court that decided the Blassingame case today is the court that will hear the appeal from Judge Chutkin. Now, it's not definite that she'll get the same, you know, three judge panel, but it's most likely that her decision will be affirmed and that it will go up on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. The reason why I believe it will will be affirmed is for the reason Lisa mentioned, which is um, the, the case that the precedent for allowing a president to face civil trial is kind of a higher standard in that the thinking was at the time, if we're going back um, to uh, Nixon versus Fitzgerald, or we're going back to the uh, Clinton and Jones case, the idea is that you don't want at least a sitting president distracted from their duties while they're in office. Um, and so there would be official act immunity here in, in that civil case that we, we just talked about. The question is a factual one as to whether Donald Trump was campaigning um, uh, when this uh, this insurrection mm-hmm. occurred, when his actions led to that, or if he was acting as president, we all know that I, you know, that he was campaigning. In this case, with this the criminal case, um, the case is being brought now. He's not a sitting president, so we don't have the OLC memo, and we have this, you know, we have a situation um, where a very strong argument is made here by, you know, by Judge Chutkin, that both his constitutional claims, um, as well as his, Mm -hmm. his claim here for immunity, just, just, just can't stand, you know, we don't have a monarchy, we don't have the divine right of kings, is what she said, his power does not come from God, it comes from the people, and he's not even president right now. With that in mind, um, this is not the only legal case that Donald Trump is facing. Let's pivot to Fulton County, Georgia, where Judge Scott McAvee did not set a trial date today. But did you, Lisa, get a sense of how he felt about the Trump team's scheduling preferences, which could put this trial out to the end of the decade? I didn't, Melissa. And that was actually what surprised me. I think he was trying to see whether there was any room to schedule a trial, a place where the prosecution and the defense might agree. But as you previewed, Steve Sato really gave him no opening. He essentially said, August is way too soon. And any time after November is too late. And in between, my guy is busy campaigning. And so there was no place. Steve Sato was very agreeable, I should say, and much less contentious, for example, than the lawyers I've been watching in the Trump civil fraud trial here in New York. But despite 
his very polite approach to the bench, he wasn't allowing really for any opportunity to try his client at all. He laid forth the the trial schedule and said, you know, he's going to trial in D.C. in March, and then he's got a trial scheduled in Florida in May. And then thereafter, he's supposed to be tried in New York. I'll pause there and say that's not accurate. Actually, there is the hush money case in New York still scheduled for March. But the bottom line is Steve Sato wasn't allowing for the possibility that his client can be tried in the next year. And Judge Scott McAfee sort of withheld comment and said, "Okay, we'll set a trial date at a later time and didn't really give anyone there a sense of what he's thinking other than by being deliberate and pausing and not necessarily engaging with it right now. Maybe he's trying to postpone some of the more contentious aspects of the proceeding Mm -hmm. before him. Well, Jen, do you think that we are ever going to get a sense of a firm trial date in Georgia? I mean, there's a lot going on there. It's a multi-defendant case. Lots of things could happen. But the Georgia case is the one that I think many people are looking at. It's the one where Donald Trump, if he is reelected president, will not have an opportunity to pardon himself. What's the likelihood that we are going to get a firm date? And when might that be? I'm really concerned after today's hearing that this might get pushed past the November election. And the reason why I say that is the judge didn't seem confident that August could actually happen as a date. And now we're, you know, as you know, by the time we're in August, we're going to have a Republican candidate who is the nominee. And if that is Donald Trump, I could very well see somehow the judge being convinced that it would make sense to postpone this case. Um, So, you know, I'm, I'm greatly concerned. You know, the name of the game has always been delay. I enjoy, you know, like everyone else, reading the legal details and really nerding out on the arguments here. But the more complex the arguments are, the more mm-hmm. complex the discovery is, it just delays things. So I'm not sure when we're going to get a date, but I don't think we're going to get a firm date maybe until February at the earliest. And that well, date will probably be after August. Well, that is concerning. Um, And we've talked about a number of different cases. The one case we haven't really mentioned is the classified documents case that's pending before Judge Eileen Cannon. Um, Many people have criticized Judge Cannon for what they view as slow walking this case. Um, There is apparently a forecasted May start date for this trial, but there are a lot of really complex issues about how classified information can be introduced into evidence in these cases. And that's likely to push this out. All of these decisions have to implicate each other in some way, the scheduling part of this. So if Judge Cannon is going slow on deciding some of these really important issues and in setting a date for this trial to start, how is that going to implicate the scheduling of the other cases, like the D.C. election interference case, like the New York hush money trial, and like the Georgia election interference case? Lisa? Well, let's start with the D.C. election interference case. I think Judge Chutkin is really bound and determined to try that case in March. And unless appellate issues interfere, I think we should expect that she will, in fact, try her case in March. As for the others, if Judge Cannon doesn't have her trial in May, one of the reasons I think Judge Juan Marchand here in New York, who's presiding over the Hushmany case, refuses to give up his own March trial date is because he's hoping that when ty- tr- what I call trial Tetris sorts itself out, he might be able to slot himself in somewhere else. The other thing that happened today that, Melissa, maybe gives some of us a little glimpse of hope is that Judge Scott McAfee asked 
the prosecution in Fulton County, Georgia, how much time would you need to get yourself ready for trial? In other words, if I said today that I'm ready to hold this trial, how many days or weeks do you need to be trial ready? And the answer from the prosecution was 30 days. So it's always possible, I suppose, that if Judge Cannon, as many expect, me included, doesn't stick to that May trial date, that Judge Scott McAfee may in fact say to the Fulton County DA's office, hey, you guys ready to go in 30 days? Because we have some time to have a trial. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So anything could happen. And again, one person might slide in to take another person's trial date. That's really helpful. Lisa Rubin and Jen Taub, thank you so much for your time tonight. We have lots more ahead on the show, including the historic vote in Congress that sent Representative George Santos packing. What does this mean for the GOP's already razor-thin majority in the House? And later, the war between Israel and Hamas rages again after the collapse of a week-long ceasefire. What that means for hostages and civilians in the region. Stay with us. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Bipartisanship is in short supply on Capitol Hill, but Representative George Santos managed to do the impossible. He united lawmakers behind a common goal, expelling him from the House of Representatives. George Santos is a liar. He fabricated the qualifications, his background. He has manufactured his entire life. He blatantly stole from his campaign. He is a perpetrator of a massive fraud on his constituents and the American people. He can defend himself in a court of law, but for the purposes of this body, he's got to go. George Santos's reported lies and alleged criminal wrongdoing brought together members from both sides of the aisle in a rare act of bipartisanship. That said, though, this is still a Republican Party guided by Donald Trump's principles, So Santos's actions weren't a deal breaker for everyone. I'll oppose the George Santos expulsion. But what? what, Because Santos was was buying Botox and OnlyFans, we got to throw him out? The swamp water is very murky. It's deep. But for George uh, Santos, there doesn't appear to be a safe lily pad. The congressional equivalent of a public crucifixion. And today, just before the House was set to vote on George Santos's expulsion, new accusations surfaced. In a letter to House Republicans, GOP Congressman Max Miller said that the Santos campaign had charged his and his mother's credit cards without their approval. 
The charges were in amounts that exceeded FEC limits. Miller added that he had seen a list of names that included other House members who he believes were also charged by the Santos campaign. And maybe all of that was the straw that broke the elephant's back, because after those accusations were made, George Santos was expelled from Congress in a vote of 311 to 114. Santos was present in the chamber and conveniently was wearing his coat during the vote. He walked out as the vote cleared a two-thirds supermajority. He quickly left the grounds of the Capitol, pushing past reporters without offering comment. George Santos is set to go to trial next September, and his New York congressional seat is now vacant. The special election to fill that seat will no doubt be hotly contested. Joining us now to assess all of this is Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic. Mark, thank you so much for being here. First up, George Santos did not talk to any of the press on his way out of the Capitol today. Do you believe he is just going to go back to a quiet private life? Uh, well, it doesn't sound like he had a very quiet life to begin with. Um, you know, I'm unclear what to believe and what what not to believe, obviously. But um, no, I mean, I think George Santos is someone who, um, you know, remains dangerous to the Republican Party. I think that was probably the reason a lot of Republicans wound up voting for him. There weren't enough. But he got a fair amount of support, but, you know, almost half the caucus or so. So he, he basically, um, you know, but he's dangerous. He's going to give some interviews, quite obviously. He's not going to be silent for much longer. And, you know, if the last few days are any indication, he seems pretty ready to name names and tell stories. You know, the question is, I mean, I wouldn't say he has a lot of credit. Credibility, but but anyone who has been on on the inside of this sanctum and who has seen things and who's in a position to tell stories, you know, is, is a loose cannon. So I think you know there will obviously be some nervous members right now, um, mm-hmm. sort of seeing what his next moves are. Well, you alluded to this a little bit. It seems likely that some of the Republican leadership might be worried about the kinds of tales that George Santos might tell. But some in the leadership noted that their decision to vote not to expel Santos was predicated on this idea of a slippery slope, that if he's expelled in a circumstance that doesn't involve a criminal conviction, this opens the door to censure or expel other members of the House for other kinds of reasons that don't arise to the level of criminal wrongdoing. What do you make of that? claim. And we have seen an uptick in these kinds of ethics claims in the House. Is it likely that we're going to see a flood of them before long? I don't know about a flood. But I mean, I think what you do have to say is is that George Santos's case is pretty egregious. I mean, it was he was dead to rights across the board. I mean, just the serial fabrications, the, the fraud perpetrated. I mean, it goes in all directions. And then you couple that with just his conduct in office, which has been, you know, bizarre, to say the least. Um, you know, I would say it's a pretty strong case against him, you know, whether he was convicted or not. I mean, I think, you know, I, I would... I would be I would be shocked if any of the Republican members were being disingenuous here. But I think that that it, this is probably a combination of having a really slim majority to begin with and not wanting mm-hmm. to lose a seat um, or just also worried, you know, the slippery slope, meaning, you know, it could actually affect others close to them or them themselves. Well, one Republican leader who surely should be worried is Mike Johnson, who has had a disruptive start to his tenure as Speaker of the House. Now his majority in this chamber has dwindled to just three votes. What are the chances that he can keep his fractious caucus in line and advance their agenda when he has so few votes to spare? 
Yeah, I mean, look, it was extremely challenging to begin with, as we've seen in his short tenure, and certainly as we saw in Speaker McCarthy's tenure. Um, you know, it's really, really tough, especially with this caucus. Everyone feels empowered because, you know, everyone is so powerful, ultimately. Uh, now it's, um, you know, it's that much more difficult by, by a quarter because it's gone from four to three. So, um, yeah, I mean, he never had an easy job. It certainly got, you know, a little less easy today. Although, on the, on the, on the other hand, George Santos, I guess isn't his headache anymore, at least as far as any trouble or, or embarrassment he's going to cause from within the chamber. Silver linings. Um, whether by design or simply by inadvertence, the Republicans find themselves in unprecedented circumstances. They have seen a protracted vote to install a Speaker of the House. They saw the historic ouster of that Speaker and now the rare expulsion of a member. Is there any way forward for the Republican caucus that provides a little more leadership, a little more governing and a little less turbulence? I, I don't see it happening. I mean, you know, I think if anything, it's going to get harder. I mean, I, it's possible that someone like Kevin McCarthy could leave Congress, you know, any day. I mean, he's been making noises about that. And, you know, then you go from three to two and who knows what else could happen. So, I mean, the majority, you know, is, is shrinking and there's not a lot of room to shrink. But I also think that, that look, I mean, it, this Congress and this majority has had nothing but chaos, nothing but headaches. I don't see that changing just because there's a new leader and, and all Already, what we've seen in the Matt Gates example from last month is that, look, if, if you feel compelled to do a motion to vacate, you know, the speaker is, is in real, real trouble. And Johnson, you know, especially in getting this recent CR passed, you know, has, has used up a lot of goodwill um, in his caucus in so much as he had some to begin with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it might be harder for him to do something like that next time. Well, thank you so much for helping us to make sense of all of this chaos. Mark Leibovich, thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks. Coming up later this hour, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman to become a Supreme Court justice, died today at age 93. We'll take a look at her life, her work, and the legacy she leaves behind and the court she leaves behind. But first, how the ceasefire between Israel and Hamas collapsed and whether a new truce is possible in the near future. That's all up next. Stay with us. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. A week-long ceasefire between Israel and Hamas came to an abrupt and deadly end today. And scenes like these from earlier in the week, scenes of relief as hostages and prisoners were exchanged and reunited with their families, 
were in stark contrast to what we saw tonight. Scenes of devastation and destruction as Israel's bombing campaign resumes in the Gaza Strip. Israel is blaming Hamas for the collapse of the ceasefire, saying Hamas violated the terms of the deal when it fired rockets into southern Israel shortly before the truce ended. This is Han Yunis in southern Gaza, where earlier today, residents found leaflets warning them to relocate to the city of Rafah near the Egyptian border. And that's raising fresh concerns over the safety of civilians in the region. You'll recall that at the start of the war, Palestinians living in northern Gaza were told to evacuate to the south. Now, these already displaced Palestinians are once again being directed to relocate amid a war that has resumed in full force. Joining us now is Ayman Moyedin, host of Ayman on MSNBC, someone who has spent years reporting from Gaza, including during the 2014 war. Ayman, thank you so much for being here. Israel is telling Palestinians in Gaza to go to places like Rafah, where we're already seeing strikes. What does it tell you that Israel is now telling even those in southern Gaza to relocate? Is there anywhere in Gaza that's going to be safe for civilians right now? Yeah, Melissa, it's good to be with you. And uh, I think this was a major concern among human uh, rights organizations and certainly international aid organizations who have been following the slow progression of this war over the past uh, eight or nine weeks. Keep in mind, uh, when this war started on October 7th, the uh, most significant part of Gaza that was devastated and destroyed was really the northern part. Everywhere was being hit, but it was the northern part of Gaza Mm -hmm. that was coming under intense bombardment. So you had Uh, about a million people displaced, moving south uh, into the southern part of Gaza Strip, into the area near Khan Yunus and elsewhere. And now they're being pushed further westwards from the eastern part of the Strip towards the coastline. And so what you're doing is cramming about two million people uh, in an area that normally was densely populated over the span of uh, 150 square miles to even less than that. It's becoming increasingly more dangerous and more fraught for the civilians that have been displaced and are being squeezed. And what it does raise concerns among Palestinians and Egyptians that Israel is, in fact, trying to move the Palestinian population in Gaza outside of this strip and displace them on the Egyptian side of the border. So, Ibn, we've had these individuals being told to relocate to Rafah for their safety. What will inevitably happen to those who do make it to Rafah? Well, unfortunately, right now, there's no answer to that, Melissa. Um, There are tents that are being set up. People are taking refuge wherever they can, in some cases, sleeping outside. Of course, the temperature is dropping. It's getting colder by the day. And the conditions there, uh, according to the United Nations, was simply described as hell on earth. Uh, There's no clean water. There's no sanitation. Supplies are once again running low because as a result of today's uh, continuation of the war, uh, humanitarian aid was not delivered into the Gaza Strip. So the situation there, uh, to quote humanitarian aid organizations, is beyond catastrophic and dire. The simple answer is there is nowhere uh, safe for the people of Gaza to go, for the Palestinians of Gaza to go. Uh, For them, basically, it is moving around uh, at the whims of the Israeli military, telling them to move from the north to the south and now from the southeast across to the western part. But when they are there, nobody knows. And it raises a lot of questions about the military strategy here. And it's certainly one that the White House has also expressed tremendous Uh, concern about that because there are no safe places left in Gaza. The idea of attacking the southern part where millions of people have now uh, gathered and congregated seeking refuge and shelter would only make a humanitarian catastrophe that much worse. We've already seen 15,000 people dead, another 180 today, the vast majority of them women and children. 
Well, can we pick up on the timing of this? Um, as you've suggested, it's becoming increasingly unsafe, even in the southern part of Gaza. Why then is Israel choosing this moment to expand its ground campaign to the south? So the fundamental uh, motivation behind that is it had two strategic objectives. One was to release the hostages and two, to destroy Hamas. And as we saw over the course of the last seven days, it was through diplomatic efforts and the mediations that released the vast majority of the hostages uh, so far to date have come as a result of these negotiations. Absent of any further negotiations to release the remaining hostages that include Israeli soldiers, men of civilian age, uh, of reservist age in the uh, in the civilian population, absent of any negotiations to release those hostages, Israel has decided to return to the other objective, which it claims is to destroy Hamas. So that is why it has returned to the bombardment mm-hmm. campaign that we're seeing play out uh, right now. But as you mentioned, because the population had already been displaced from the north and because the border with Egypt is closed, there simply is nowhere safe for these people in uh, the southern part of Gaza to go where the bombardment is taking place. The original plan for the truce was to exist for four days. And then, as you know, through negotiations, it was then extended to seven days. Now, with Israel and Hamas blaming each other and U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken blaming Hamas, how have negotiations broken down? And will this prevent the possibility of another extension of the ceasefire or a resumption of the ceasefire? So when we um, what we know right now from speaking to uh, officials in the region and certainly in the U.S. is that negotiations are still underway to try and return this process to uh, a diplomatic one. And it's important to keep in mind and remind our viewers that when we got to the negotiating point uh, of this conflict for the release of hostages, the negotiations centered around the first phase, which included women and children in the formula that they had created, which was more or less for every Israeli civilian or hostage that was held that was released, Israel would release up to 10 Palestinians that it held in its custody. Now, that formula was for specifically for women and children. What Israel was expecting was that formula to continue for all of the hostages that Hamas had in its possession. And Hamas made clear that it was not going to abide by that uh, when it came to Israeli soldiers that it has in its custody. And Israeli soldiers also include men who are of reservist age, women who possibly served in the military, uh, and even the elderly. So right now, the negotiations are on trying to reestablish an equation, if you will, in which more humanitarian aid can be delivered, in which more Palestinians Mm -hmm. can be released, in which more Israeli uh, hostages could be returned. Eamon Moedin, thank you so much for your time tonight. We appreciate it. Still ahead tonight. The nightmare that could be headed our way as this conservative Supreme Court consider whether government as we know it is actually constitutional. That story is up next. Today saw the passing of retired Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. First appointed to the bench in 1981 by Republican President Ronald Reagan, O'Connor was the first woman to sit on the high court, where she was viewed as a voice of moderation, caution, and pragmatism. Although she was appointed by a Republican, O'Connor broke with her conservative roots and her personal views to uphold the right to an abortion in the 1992 case Planned Parenthood v. Casey. She also cast the deciding vote to defend affirmative action in 2003's Grutter v. Bollinger. One of her former law clerks described her today as, quote, a stabilizing force in American society. 
someone who was extremely hesitant about overturning precedents because such decisions jolted the legal system. O'Connor's passing really does mark the end of an era at the court, an era where the court seemed more cautious, moderate, and attentive to public mood on hot-button issues. Now, we have a Supreme Court that, in just the last two years, has laid waste to precedent, dismantling affirmative action and abortion rights. And this term, the court may deliver another punishing blow to the foundations of American life and government. A series of cases that have flown completely under the radar have the potential to hobble the federal government's authority to regulate markets, the economy, and natural resources, just to name a few. This week, the court heard oral arguments in a case known as the Securities and Exchange Commission versus Jarkissi. The details of the case are wonky, but its implications are not. The plaintiff is a Republican activist and conservative radio show host who's challenging an SEC penalty for allegedly misleading investors in a financial scheme. The specific issue in the case is whether independent judges within the SEC can determine whether Jarkissi violated the law and punish him accordingly. But the issue calls into question the broader question of whether government agencies have broad powers to do, well, anything. Things like issue fines, enforce workplace safety rules, all the stuff that government regulators routinely do. If the conservative justices side with Mr. Jarkissi, and it seems that they will, it would make it considerably more difficult for the federal government to punish financial fraudsters, enforce environmental law, or ensure that businesses keep their workers safe. And all of this is part of the conservatives' war against government regulation and the so-called administrative state. The man most responsible for the court's current conservative makeup is this guy, Federalist Society co-chairman Leonard Leo, the man who handpicked Donald Trump's ultra-conservative Supreme Court nominees. Leonard Leo is a longtime critic of the administrative state and government regulation. Just take a listen to what Leo told a gathering of conservatives just after Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation about where he believed the Supreme Court would be headed. I think one area that you're going to see an increasing amount of attention uh, is, is with regard to the proper role of the administrative state, the regulatory bureaucracy. Look, you have to understand what motivates, what motivates the hard left. They would much prefer have limitless delegations of authority to the administrative state and to bureaucrats who are unelected so that basically they can create the kind of social safety net, regulatory net that they want. Leonard Leo really wants to destroy American government's authority to regulate, and particularly to regulate corporate interests, which is why it is unsurprising that the Jarkissi case was brought with the help of several right-wing billionaires with deep ties to, wait for it, Leonard Leo. And while America's regulatory powers may not feel as big and important as affirmative action or the right to bodily autonomy, make no mistake about it. Federal regulation affects everything. The security of your retirement savings, the safety of the food you eat, the water you drink, the purity of the air that you breathe. And this court has shown a willingness to drastically alter American society, no matter the consequences. Now, one of its recent decisions is the basis for a new conservative assault on a government program designed specifically to combat high rates of maternal mortality and morbidity among Black Americans. That story is up next.
In America, pregnant black people are three to four times more likely than pregnant white people to die in labor. Black infants are twice as likely as white infants to be born prematurely and to die before their first birthdays. That's the sort of data that prompted the city of San Francisco to launch the Abundant Birth Project in 2020. The program provides monthly stipends to Black and Pacific Islander mothers to reduce the birth complications that disproportionately impact these groups. The project is the first of its kind in the nation, and it may be the last. Wielding the Supreme Court's June decision striking down affirmative action, conservative groups have sued to shut down the Abundant Birth Project, arguing that the project, quote, violates the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution's 14th Amendment by granting money exclusively to Black and Pacific Islander women. Joining me now to break it all down is Dorian Mason, Director of the Health Equity and Reproductive Rights Project at the National Women's Law Center. Dorian, the Supreme Court's recent decision on affirmative action was focused on college admissions. What is the basis for extending the arguments from that case to now implicate health care and maternal health? Honestly, there simply is no basis for that extension. Now, conservative groups are attempting to extend these attacks into healthcare systems and programs that are designated and designed to address health inequities. But we have to keep in mind what exactly is at risk. When talking about an educational opportunity, we're talking about admission to a specific institution or activity. But when we're talking about maternal mortality program, we're actually talking about people's lives. And that is an unignorable difference. So yes, these attacks broadly seek to curtail opportunities for Black Americans, but this specifically relating to maternal health programs poses such a serious risk to achieving the equitable health outcomes uh, that we're all looking to achieve. And the equitable health outcomes that you have discussed, they're data supported. And in ending affirmative action, the Supreme Court said that neither Harvard nor the University of North Carolina had enough data or evidence to justify the use of race in their college admissions protocols. But again, there are dozens of studies here that show that a disproportionate number of black women die in childbirth. Is that kind of data going to affect the outcome of this case? Should it? That is in incredibly important, right? So when we're talking about when Black women are seeking out care, they're more likely to have their pain dismissed or ignored. They're more likely to experience misdiagnosis or delayed diagnosis. They're more likely to be disrespected or talked down to. And so it's no surprise that in turn, Black women and the data supports this are nearly three times as likely or more likely to die from pregnancy-related outcomes. So the, the data is certainly there. And what's most ironic is that you won't find a group of people that are more interested in race not being a factor than Black people who are pregnant. They don't want being Black to mean that they Uh have a three times higher likelihood of dying or that their children, as you stated, have a two times higher likelihood of dying. So the data is there and the experiences of people directly support um, the fact that, that their experiences are distinct enough to warrant having a distinct program to support their health and well-being. That's a great point. Um, You alluded to this just briefly before, but I wish you would elaborate. Um, The maternal health context is very different from college admissions. So, you know, if you don't get into the University of Virginia, for example, you can attend another school like Harvard or Yale. However, if you have a maternal health crisis, you're literally risking death to you and or your child. Do you think that the life or death stakes of this scenario will change how a court will address this kind of legal challenge? 
That's right. I think that it has to it has to impact how the court would view these issues, right? So not only do we have data that support the fact that Black women are having a unique experience when they are experiencing pregnancy and birth, but we also understand that the consequences, the harm that occurs is so much more staggering, Mm -hmm. so much more significant. So that is inevitably going to be a significant part of the consideration by the courts. So We talked a little bit about this in the last segment, but we have the Dobbs decision from 2022. We have the affirmative action decision from last term. This case seems to be the love child of both of those decisions, fitting neatly inside this broader conservative project that the Supreme Court has been prosecuting. Can we expect more programs like this to be targeted? And how would you respond if more of these programs come under fire from conservative groups? I would expect that additional programming would be targeted, uh, but the response is simply to, again, uplift the fact that these are unique circumstances that in turn must require a unique and uh, contemplative response. And so there is data that supports targeting black and brown women because the disparities support that. And we know that the data support the fact that these interventions are effective. Uh-huh. And so between those two differences, I, I believe that we um, we may have have some support in having a different ruling. Dorian Mason, thank you so much for your time tonight. That's our show for tonight. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.